I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening talking about this fascinating uh, new book by Slavoj Žižek. Uh, it contains lots of very provocative and extremely timely reflections on uh, <coughs> contemporary political moments, specifically on the state of ideology in the world today. That will be no surprise to those who are familiar with Slavoj's work. But also the challenge of post-humanism and the uh, implications of the digital infrastructure that is uh, constraining and monitoring and reconstructing subjectivity across Western democracies at the moment today. But I wanted to start by asking Slavoj to say a little bit about what I think will be a question on many people's minds, which is about this title of A Thief in Broad Daylight. And it's something that you uh, introduce uh, early in the book, where you're talking about the possibility of a maybe not a, a revolutionary moment, but of the political moment, of the contingency of politics and of possibilities of emancipation today. Um, and that in some ways, we seem duped by assuming we can't see what's in front of our eyes, whereas in fact, like the thief in broad daylight, mm. you say that on closer look, capitalism is openly disintegrating and changing into something else. We do not perceive this ongoing transformation because of our deep immersion in ideology. And then you compare this to the process of psychoanalytic treatment, which uh, where resolution also comes as a thief in broad daylight. So I just wonder if we could start by talking a bit about this strange, what seemed to me a dialectic between visibility and invisibility, where that which is naked and happening before our very eyes is somehow not visible to us, whereas somehow there is an assumption that power lies in places that we can't see it. Because in some ways we're so sort of trapped or maybe even kind of addicted to an ideology that insists that power is not visible. Could you just say a bit about this, this notion of the thief in broad daylight? First, just to give to some of you who are still, as I am, attached emotionally and so on mm. to Marxism. Mm. Uh, this, I'm not saying anything new here. This is the central point of mm. Marx's critique of political economy. When Marx says the secret is in the form, mm. not behind, not hidden. And incidentally, exactly the same thing is repeatedly stressed out by Freud. That uh, the secret of a dream is not some hidden thought and so on. It's precisely the, what Freud calls unconscious wish mm. enters precisely in the transformation of the thought of a dream into dream imagery, into the manifest dream. So this idea that secret is out there I can even put it in another way with, uh, I didn't like especially the series, but I like the motto of uh, X-Files, you know, mm. the truth is out there. And this is the point of Marx, who, I, I'm sorry if some of you know this line of mine, but I think it's today more valid than ever. Well, uh, Marx's theory of commodity fetishism. Mm. People forget, my God, how subversive this is for today. Marx is not and still valid. Marx, you see, now I'm enacting. This, uh, it's as if I 
jumped out of the pages of your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can hire me for, to do some publicity. Oh, oh, oh. And then I say we did read his book. <laughs> no, sorry, seriously. You know, the point of Marx is not we in our lives, we live in fetishist illusions, but reality is the way it is. Marx's point is that we may be rational and even know how things really are. But when we act socially, our mm -hmm. social reality is structured mm -hmm. as an illusion. Illusions are embedded in our activity, and this is, I think, what is happening today ideologically. That's why we have this structure, like, we, this would be in broad daylight, because we know what is happening, but we, we know how things are, but we don't know that, nonetheless, we follow illusions. If you allow me to repeat my oldest joke, which even in this room probably I repeated it. I'm sorry, but it makes the point about, you know, Niels Bohr, that uh, uh, horseshoe above the door. This idea when Niels Bohr answered his friend, uh, okay, I have that superstitious item, uh, why? His friend asked him, do you have it? Niels Bohr says, I know it doesn't work, but I was told, I know it's an illusion, but I don't believe in it, but friends told me that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's <laughs> ideology today, you know? Right. And what intrigued me, to answer more concretely yeah. to your point, is this paradox. On the one hand, okay, years ago when we, especially me, when I was younger, we had relative welfare, the golden era, although it was not as golden as it may appear, 60s, 70s, social democratic welfare state, and the entire effort of critical theory was to show how we may think that we are happy consumers, but in reality we are more alienated than ever, blah, blah, blah. And Marxists always acted that as if they have the solution, in whatever way, social revolution and so on, just you couldn't, you cannot move the subjects to do it, you know. And that's why, incidentally, I claim that Marxists always, Orthodox Marxists, always liked psychoanalysis. Because they claimed we have the right analysis. Then you ask them, why is there no revolution? They say, eh, ask Freudians, right. how we are manipulated <laughs> unconsciously and so on. But today it's almost the opposite. There is exploding real discontent, mm. and the left doesn't seem to have uh, 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 a good answer. Mm. Like, and I'm telling this from my practice. I was in Greece. I was at, it began with Occupy Wall Street. I was there. I asked them the simple question, Freudian, not what does the woman, wa a woman want, but what do you want? Right. And the answer was, we want end of this uh, horrible banking. Then I asked them, okay, okay, but what concretely do you want? And all that came down with the big majority was some kind of a general anti-corruption stuff that I always, in a very brutal way, told them, are you aware to Occupy Wall Street guys that what you are saying, every honest fascist would agree. We need uh, to control financial capital. Uh, and isn't this sad? Like the, the guy whom I quote, Wolfgang Streck, the German guy, Verso Publisher, he says this nicely. He says that Marxists always, and I try to still be some kind of a Marxist, always suppose that 
capitalism, the, capi the disintegration of capitalism means another force more progressive will hopefully take over. But mm. what we are getting now is in some sense just the disintegration of mm. capitalism. Mm. And so that's why I think, I will stop immediately, yeah. that's, if you are stupid enough to believe me, that, <laughs> that's why I think uh, uh, we get this politically correct mm. moralism by right. the left. Moralism is always an effect of mm. uh, lack of political vision. Yeah, and um, I, I just want to press you a little bit on what, what would it take then for the kind of political subjectivity that you would be in favour of to appear in this particular context? Because, so you're saying that nothing has particularly changed, except that what has changed is that people can no longer claim that they don't know the nature of the world. This yeah, but nonetheless, uh, look, with all the stuff that's happening today, and that's why I mm. remain mm. a Marxist, yeah. I'll put these paradoxical formulations. I think it's in the book. I'm not, I write too much. I don't even know what's in the book. It's in one of my books, okay. That uh, Marx, of the was, Marx was right much more than he thought. And that's why we have to move further. To give you an example, everybody quotes this, you know, most famous lines from Communist Manifesto. Everything solid is getting fluid and so on and so on. But look at what, to what level this exploded today. Even our gender identity is becoming fluid. Nature itself with Anthropocene is becoming fluid. You cannot anymore rely you know, on this idea that we humans are dynamic, we change reality, but it all happens against the background of some natural mm. rhythm and stability and so mm. on and so on. So just to finish, mm. crucial part there is the following one, I think, in my book. When I emphasize that, on the one hand, that's the, our tragedy today. The left doesn't really have a vision, and I'm not a utopian, I'm not mm. saying they should have a detailed program, but just a global vision, what to do. On the other hand, even people whom I otherwise despise, they are the most dangerous, I claim. This uh, big, I call them ironically, the new capitalist corporate uh, organic intellectuals, mm. you know. And I find this one of the most Do you have an example of this? Oh, but, 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 name them. Bill Gates, Mark oh, okay. Zuckerberg, and so on. In my <laughs> Gulag country. I thought you meant intellectuals working in universities or something like that. No, no, no. They are okay. no problem. As yeah. CIA know in the 50s, they are very cheap to buy and right. so on. No, what I'm saying is that how even they are repeatedly saying capitalism, the way we know mm. it, cannot survive. Yeah. And this is my motive for the last 10 years. I see a whole set of problems, like financial capital, intellectual property, digital universe. Mm. I don't think capitalism, the way we have it, can cope with it in the long mm. term. Then it's biogenetics. Mm. You must know this. Tremendous things are biogenetics, mm. digital universe, wiring our brain. Something is happening there so that will... I mean, there's a, there's a theme running through the book, and the subtitle of the book is Power in the Era of Post-Humanity, yeah. which is effectively the dissolution of the liberal Cartesian subject that we've known okay, for Okay, in my view, years. but let's not go into philosophy. Okay, but, uh, yeah, I but, would but uh, exempt Cartesian. We, I'm an old would, Cartesian. Like a, <laughs> no, no, you know what I will say? Sorry, mm. that only in our digital universe, mm. 
we become true Cartesian subject. Mm. Right. Because the Cartesian subject is pure, I think. Mm. Which means all, even my natural properties, everything is can be deconstructed, mm. blah, blah. What remains is the pure cogito. So right. I'm okay. an old Cartesian right. okay. here, but that's okay, another but, but some topic. Of yeah. the, some of the political challenges you lay down, because you're talking about things like Cambridge Analytica and these threats to the liberal public But you know what I like there? Yeah. That they, and it's your stuff, right. not what you criticize, yeah, yeah. that it fascinated me so much that all these groups involved in the worst manipulations right. began as groups researching happiness. And my conclusion is not this is false happiness. Mm. My conclusion is that happiness is a false category. Mm. Don't talk about happiness. Mm. Happiness is for idiots. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, that I had in one of my old books, I'm jumping, I know, but fuck you, why did you come here? <laughs> you know you will get this, that when I sp spoke in uh, Lithuania 10 years ago, give me an example where pe when people were really happy. The only example I could have imagined is Czechoslovakia after 68, mm in the, the darkest Husak era. Mm. Why? Because uh, first, standard of living should be relatively stable, but not too good. Because if you get everything all the time, you forget how good, how lucky you are and you are not. So this second thing, you must not be in power, people because then you feel responsible. You must have somebody up there, communist, you can blame them for, them for everything mm. and so on. I leave some conditions. So happiness is for me not a mm. good creative category. Happiness is for stupid people. I but don't the, want, but that's a, that's uh, uh, sorry, just, let's be personal, mm. take love. Mm. If there is a thing which ruins your life, it's serious, passionate love. Mm. Imagine yourself, you have happy one night stands, meet friends, drink whiskey, then you passionately fall in mm. love. Admit it, your happiness is ruined. You all the time worry and so on. And I'm against happiness. Quite literally, I'm not kidding, I mean. Yeah, yeah well, uh, so the, 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 the theme in the, in the book that I think, which is what I was alluding to about this sort of corrosion of the liberal subject, yeah, yeah. is of the rapid advance of this kind of behaviorist infrastructure that can track us, can predict us. Uh, and you talk a bit about early on about how the progress of today's sciences destroys the basic presuppositions of our everyday notion of reality. And that progress is partly the fact that brain is replacing mind in some sense. Is this not a kind of, there's a sort of... And brain is, this is extremely yeah. important. As yeah. you know, I have no doubt, no sarcastic irony here mm. that you know all the details better than mm. me. I think that two mega things mm. are happening today. Not only is this uh, uh, digital control, machines know everything, although we can go on, you must know better than me, these details are extremely fascinating. Mm. For example, do you know I was told at some meeting that uh, the, the usual, not the cheapest maybe, how do you call them, snikers, uh, sn uh, sneakers, uh, sneakers, yes, sorry, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. that you buy, already have a small chip in them, mm. which informs the company mm. how often, with what strength you walk, etc. Mm. Average big TV today mm. observes, not only informs them what you watch, but mm. has the basic facial recognition which what enthusiasm, so uh, this is one, Think, but what fascinates me, and, and it's the power of recognition already is incredible. 
a friend from China told me it was public there, mm. uh, rendered public. You know that a couple of months ago in China, the authorities knew that in a big stadium, 60,000 people, mm. that there is a murderer there who recently committed a mass murder. So they put a big drone above the stadium and it's uh, the recognition machinery ID was so strong that the drone scanned all 60,000 people individually, in mm. identified them and measured the identity of feeling because they, they thought they deduced that the guy will be still excited and so on. And the drone identified yeah. the murderer and so on. Okay, mm. now this is typical mm. digital manipulation where they say, you see, we caught a murderer, but they are not only catching murderers mm. <laughs> and so on. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that what fascinates me, and I, without any irony again, I would ask you if you know more about this. What fascinates me even more, I think this will change everything. Mm. Here, I agree with you, we have some post-Cartesian elements. Well, I mean, Namely, yeah. in this idea of directly mm. wiring our brain mm. to a computer. Yeah. Because in this way, we really become post-humans. Isn't it the very basis of our human identity? <coughs> I am here, reality is mm. yeah. out there. Yeah. I can think freely in myself. Yeah. When this is lost, I don't want to be a cultural pessimist. Mm. The mm. only thing I don't buy is these, these are another candidates for Gulag in my <laughs> people's democracy universe. People like Ray Kurzweil and all those, yeah. you know, ooh, singularity and so on and so on. Frankly, I don't want to be a cultural pessimist. We will all be robots, mm. but also not this naive optimist, you know, right. singularity, we will all float. I just don't mm. know what will mm. happen, but I you know, I think about, didn't Virginia Woolf, who is otherwise to provoke you, that's my private dream, a much worse writer than Daphne de Maurier, but that's another topic. <laughs> Virginia Woolf, didn't she wrote a wonderful sentence that on, I don't know which August 1914 or 13, human nature mm. changed, something right. like that. I think this will happen mm. today. Mm. We, something new is emerging, yeah. which if we identify being human the way we do, and you know what's the point? The traditional leftist perspective was humanity is stronger than capitalism. The big enigma for me is it looks that we will no longer be humans, but mm. capitalism will remain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of change tack a bit to talk a bit about democracy, because it's yeah. something which runs through the book. And there's a couple of interesting things that you raise in the book. You were... Uh, Dismissive Sorry, of you really read the book. I, I read the book, I'm afraid. But didn't you follow? You know, my fa one of my favorite statements by Oscar Wilde. Right. When you write a review, okay, you did not of the book. Don't read it because it, if you read actually the book that you are reviewing, it may make your judgment partial. You know, and just what? <laughs> what my my okay, judgment of the book has been informed by the book, so yeah. I, I must confess. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you you talk about. Um, and we were talking before, but I mean, obviously, Labour Party conference is on right now. There's some sense that maybe left populism can represent a challenge to at least the current model of capitalism, if not capitalism per se. Uh, and yet you don't seize that. I mean, you're, you make some quite flattering remarks about Jeremy Corbyn and the way in which reality can be changed by political possibility at certain points. But democracy and the people are not things that have a particularly get a particularly great 
spin in this book. Uh, there is, I mean, at one point you talk about democracy being a sort of almost like a vacuum that where nobody has any sovereignty. Left populism in particular, the people like Wolfgang Streich, who you mentioned actually, has been a kind of um, promoter of this. But yes, where he's is now the... with Auferstein, this new movement right. in That's Germany. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what? It, where is sort of party politics and and the kind of movement of the left wing party in your analysis in this book? And I mean, I, I thought the book had sort of glimmers of more hope than when we were talking downstairs. Yeah. You, you you were sort of rather dismissing the the glimmers of hope that I thought I'd seen in it. But what what okay. would a okay. kind of organisation look like that might actually start to do some of this? First, I think it must be a. Uh, combination of three levels. Mm. I will not say anything great here, because, you know, I was a couple of times engaged mm. politically, more or less. The last time it was for Syriza. But the lesson was, and here I broke alliance with many of my leftist friends who simply, after the capitulation of Syriza, they simply shouted betrayal, betrayal, and so on. I don't think it was a simple betrayal. It was an authentic tragedy. And that's for me the weakness of left populism. If you read some of their partisans, propagators, they are almost saying, first my reproach to them is that it's a specific new version of me too. Like, mm. uh, right-wingers can do populism. Mm. Uh, me too. I want left to do it. Mm. You cannot do it. And I will give you a couple of reasons. The first one is that they say, but Populism, left populism is the only thing that works, it succeeded. Sorry, where did it succeed? In every case that I know, it hit a limit. In Latin America, they successfully screwed it more or less out. The only hope is, but they are very rational, cold. My only point of admiration there is my personal, maybe not friend, acquaintance, uh, Alvaro Linera. He is the brain behind uh, Morales no, in Bolivia. In Europe, okay, Podemos, but wasn't it clear already in the last elections that if you read their electoral program, it was much more modest than today's right-winger social democracy and so on. Where I don't trust them is a, a populist, is a, a couple of points. The first one is that uh, I read some books of Iglesias, the leader uh, text, sorry, of Podemos, where they still have this trust, now this will be, I warn you, a very pessimist point, namely that uh, leftist politics is too abstract, caught in this old-fashioned left-right ideology. No, uh, open yourself to the real people, listen to them, their actual worries, and so on. Well, nobody gave me a nice, uh, uh, convincing answer to this when I tell them that I don't believe there is anything really authentic in ordinary people, act, people's actual worries. I think we are in a very dangerous and tragic moment. In what sense? Please bear a little bit of patience now I'm half serious. The presupposition of Marxism, classical Marxism, is a beautiful one. It's that in a unique moment of working class, in the strict sense of they are not the same, proletariat, the highest theoretical level, understanding of human history, overlaps or gets an echo in the most concrete people's experience of suffering and so on and so on. I don't think that today 
for different reasons, you can make this link. I don't think that to confront real dangers, mm. ecology, mm. Brain, uh, brain, uh, digitalization of our brain, whatever, that you can establish at least directly the link with ordinary people's mm. worries and so on and so on. Yeah. I don't think we can, and this is a very pessimist thesis and I know how problematic it may appear to you. I don't, mm. I don't believe in this link. So I'm here some kind of a pessimist mm. and think that it's horrible for me because it goes against my nature in a way to say this, that maybe we need, oh my God, this is so horrible to say, a couple of catastrophes, right. but real catastrophes, um, I mean, to awaken us simply people. And the, okay, I will give you one example. Okay, the, the reasoning of uh, left populist, it's we need to introduce hmm. passion, antagonistic spirit against this Tony Blair, Habermas, uh, rational, pragmatic, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, First, I know, no, they don't mean this, but I find this whole line of reasoning wrong. First, and you should know it because you dealt with it. Are they in any way claiming that neoliberal economy and so on is in any deeper sense rational or whatever? I think it's extremely irrational and exclusionary. You know, if you find a logic of radical antagonistic exclusion is how neo liberal pragmatist, look at Habermas, rational argumentation and so on, but you mention radical left and he has immediately this line of this as potentially neo-fascists and so on and so on. They are against radical antagonistic thinking, but the way they exclude it is antagonistic. Second thing, you know, uh, and that's what also caught me, got, caught me in great trouble. Uh, People even take me for being somehow against immigrants and so on and so on. Okay, uh, then uh, uh, left populists will tell you, yes, we have to construct a new hegemony where the struggle for the rights of immigrants will be part of our struggle and so on and so on. You know, the new chain of equivalences. Our alliances should be ecologists, workers' rights, human rights, and uh, immigrants and so on and so on. I claim easy to say it, difficult mm. to do it. The situation is here so catastrophic. Let me tell you and basically conclude a story from my neighboring, ex, no, still neighboring country, Croatia. A friend, Srećko Horvat, told me that uh, two years ago, on the same day, by chance, two demonstrations were announced. Trade unions for some terrible blow to lower salaries, higher taxes. It was horror for ordinary people. And right-wing nationalists, you know, in the city of Vukovar, there still is a Serb minority. And here, I am on the side, exceptionally, of Croat authorities and all Democrats who said, okay, they may have committed crimes, but fuck it, they live there now, and they should have the right, because they are over 25, 30%, to use Cyrillic letters. So they did the usual democratic thing, you put their all official on buildings, official title have to be in uh, uh, Latinic and Cyrillic, and right-wingers organized demonstrations against this that it's um, an outrage, a humiliation of Croat defenders. Okay, mm. to workers' demonstration, 200 people came to 
right-wing demonstrations uh, over a quarter of a million people came. You know, and don't, it's so easy to say, yeah, hegemonic rearticulation, mm -hmm. but this should give us to think what kind of properly libidinal economies at work in this, defending our way of life and so on and so on. There is how people are ready to suffer. Here you have an example that you would have expected, but listen, there is terrible there is great uh, unemployment in Croatia, poverty and so on. Mm. So you cannot say people didn't feel the economic trouble. They did and so on. But nonetheless, and Croatia is here mm. crazy. I was ashamed in my non-nationalist way in the uh, football world championship. I was for France. At least there were some black guys there and so on, you know. <laughs> but in Croatia, you know that they invited to his to their open bus, their uh, football team, when they returned from Russia to Croatia. It was an open bus, like your tourist bus is here to circulate. And on the top, it was that terrifying, their nationalist pop singer, mm. Thompson. He's really a neo-fascist, right. even openly anti-Semitic. Sorry, just to tell you a joke, you know, when Thompson was asked, do you hate Jews? You know what he answered officially? He answered, uh, no, I love them in the same way that Jesus Christ loved them, but nonetheless they killed him, the Jews and so on. And uh, so you cannot underestimate the strength of this uh, fascist uh, identification. Sure. And these are serious problems. I think that today, uh, okay, I will give you another example, sorry. They quote Ernesto Laclau because this is important to claim that no, we must accept this antagonistic confrontational logic yeah. and construct the enemy. Mm. That we shouldn't be afraid of constructing the figure of an enemy. Okay, for me, things get complicated here. Let's take United States. Okay, the obvious candidate is Trump. But I think to focus just on Trump is in the long term a catastrophe. You should, and that's what brought me so much trouble when I emphasize, you should take into account that Trump is a concrete case of the failure of the uh, center-left liberal consensus and so on. You have to change things mm. there. So again, to answer your question, yes, I care about liberal freedoms, mm. but only a dose, a strong injection of more radical left can save the very liberal sure, freedom. Absolutely, but I think I mean this is one of the interesting things. I mean the book. I think the book is very clear that I mean you're, the condemnation of nationalism and all forms of kind of yeah. local particularism is, is pretty unambiguous throughout the book, including in certain forms of of, of identity politics in a, in a in a different way. But openly the, opposed to it. Okay, yes, fine. I yes. just didn't want to. I think that not only is not that's where I am totally opposed. Sorry to the guy who challenged me to a duel and now. He is nowhere to be seen, the great, the greatest thinker, you don't know him of our time, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, this guy is dreaming. He's presenting today's political correctness and so on as cultural Marxism. Is he crazy? Look at the history of Frankfurt School already in the 30s correcting serious mistakes by Wilhelm Reich, Adorno and Horkheimer drew attention on the ambiguity of even paternal authority. They didn't buy this story of paternal authority is the root of fascist authority. On the opposite, Adorno saw clearly that Hitler was not fascist leader, not a figure. So what I'm saying is that 
this uh, that it's total mystification. Mm. I think that if anything, this today's political correctness is, if I may use this jargon in, a, in the book, is the last bourgeois defense against radical left. Mm. No wonder they are already attacking Bernie Sanders all the time. Mm. But the, I mean, there's a sort of, uh, we were talking about this before, that the, you recognize that there's a universalism is at the absolute core of this argument. That the need is to civilize civilizations, which is a kind of a, a sort of a... Uh, but as I already like... told you, this is a wonderful irony. You know from whom I took this wonderful phrase? From Peter Sloterdijk, my right-wing right. friend. And you know what I like about this is that very intelligently, Sloterdijk demonstrates something very simple, how in our ordinary nation-state logic, we are solicited to be ethical, do something for community, but, and you find this clearly in Hegel, the highest point of ethical activity is war. It's precisely aggressivity, no higher order internationally. The very, so it's not simply, let's simply expand civilized life within a state to international domain, because the civilized life we have now within states implies as its ultimate ethical foundation, but when war will come, you have to prove your fidelity and so on and so on. So the change will have to be radical. And don't you agree that with this new type of problem, immigrants, uh, uh, ecology and so on, we absolutely need transnational movements. Of course. And that's but, for me the big fiasco of European but the, Union. Are, are the intellectual resources for all of this there within the European philosophical tradition for you? In terms of, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a point in the book where you say, in short, one should never forget that the West provided the very standards by which it, as well as its critics, measures its criminal past. So there's a sort of... The, yeah, the, the, I say this to annoy my leftist friends. Okay, fine. But, well, I mean, but I agree with it. But this is, you know, this is also again what many and again, yes, when that, people are anti-Eurocentric, I ask them, but are you aware that the entire conceptual apparatus mm. that you use mm. is the one mm. of the West? Like, you know where I had here a sweet victory? Mm. Here... She agreed with me, I'm at, with this re regard to this, on good relations with her. I told Judith Butler the last time we met. But are you aware that your notion of this uh, subject con reconstructing itself, performance and so on and so on, mm. there is no space for it outside Cartesian subjectivity. Mm. Because the greatness of Descartes, I mean, this is the beginning of authentic multiculturalism. You know, when Descartes says in the... First chapter, I don't know which one, I think it's Discourse on Method, that as a young boy I was, I was shocked by the weird manners of others, other cultures. And then mm. I asked myself, what if in their eyes my culture is also weird and so on. That's the beginning. And that's the typically European approach. So paradoxically, I claim that I'm not Eurocentric in the sense that we should impose our values. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that European tradition provides the only efficient intellectual mm -hmm. tools to really fight Eurocentrism. Mm -hmm. That's my paradox. Sure. Um, I was wondering, maybe we should talk of the point about Trotsky and the engineers. Ah, I love this one. one. Nobody is... <laughs> wanted to publish it, they were afraid. You know what, can I go briefly into it? I read recently a book, you can download it on the... On, on the web, Curzio Malaparte, 
wrote already in the 30s a book on coup d'etat technique of revolution, where, and she proves it with abundant quotes, in what sense the true master of the October Revolution was Trotsky. And the key moment was when Lenin supported Trotsky. Namely, what happened was this. Stalin and the majority, Stalin was marginal, but of the Bolsheviks, still thought of revolution in this traditional sense, you know, uh, thousands of people attacking headquarters of the government and so on. And then Trotsky had an ingenious insight. He said, forget about that. Give me maximum 1,000 people. I will form like 20 groups, 50 people, specialists and well-trained soldiers, how to occupy the post which makes society function, mm. electricity, railway, water supply, and nobody expected this attack. So it's wonderful irony, two, three weeks before October Revolution, you could see Trotsky's group practicing in the ministries themselves, running up and down the stairs, and people just laughed, what are these idiots <laughs> doing? And the real revolution, and then Lenin was bright enough, he sided with Trotsky, and the real thing happens in the night before. Right. Where, and my idea is obvious here, that aren't me today to an even greater degree in such a situation. Mm. The, the point is, that's why all the states, European Union, are so obsessed by it. Who controls the, di the digital space? Everything. You, you uh, cancel the digital space. Every, all distributions are mediated. You lose water supply. Whatever, everything. So, uh, and those in power are getting ready for it. We all know, although we don't want to talk about it, that in a new emergency state, those in power have all the measures, you know, to cancel internet and so on, all that. And I think I'm not afraid to say we need elite groups of hackers yeah. to counteract yeah. but, this I mean, it, level. The discussion then moves on to WikiLeaks, which is something that... There's this, this is political action for you. I mean, this is not just a sort of a, a kind of a self-reinforcing system of power when the system is hacked in this way. I mean, I, I don't or think is the, so, and no. the proof is simple. Listen, let me put it in this way. You know, when Stalinists talked about horrors of Gulag, they use this euphemism that I like. Yes, we committed some serious mistakes, you know. That was the term for killing millions of Stalinists, no? And, okay, I am ready to say Assange committed some serious mistakes and so on. But nonetheless, the entire campaign against him, not only trying to prove that he is now again a Russian agent, but did you notice it? It was even in The Guardian, half a year ago, a notice which was so disgusting that they even then later removed it, it stopped to circulate. They claimed that they discovered from some report stolen from Ecuadorian embassy why they want to get rid of Assange, because he doesn't wash regularly and the embassy smells bad and so on. This actually, I think, he hit something, because as you must know, uh, the, the true danger of this new digital media is what? It is easy to live in an openly authoritarian state where you know that you are controlled. The most dangerous unfreedom is the unfreedom which you experience even as hated personal freedom. You know all this stuff. For example, I don't know, 
you don't get social security, you don't get a permanent job, then ideologists come and tell you, but that's wonderful. You uh, have the freedom as a, as a, how do you call this, not a permanent job, but a... Precarious. Precarious, yeah, yeah, precarious. Yeah. You know, every, every, every year you can reinvent yourself, mm. new freedom and so on, or you don't get permanent health care. Yeah. It's wonderful. You become, each of us is a capitalist. Mm. You have a small amount of money. Will I spend it for health, for the vacation of my children and so on? That's our problem in the West. I mean, when people tell me, why doesn't Assange also uh, focus on Russia, China, well, because nobody even really seriously mm. believes they are right. free there. <laughs> so, uh, so but, but the problem are precisely United States and our country where, here putting it precisely in the terms of Hegelian, that uh, again, our new unfreedom is precisely experienced as our freedom. That's the danger. You know, what can be more free than surfing the mm. internet and so on and so on? But there you are totally controlled and so on, you know. Mm. That's, the, that's why we need people. But okay, Assange is one among them. And I like to, I don't know if I need this in a book, uh, uh, have this in the book. I used it in some new text when I say, this old Maoist slogan, you know, let the hundred flowers mm. blossom, you know. Yeah. Let hundred WikiLeaks blossom, that would be mine. But on the other hand, so what, what we've got there, and this might be the pessimism of, of your political yeah. position right now, but we've got, a, we've got the, the, the hope of, of deconstructing, discrediting, uh, <laughs> demolishing, mm. but the left has to have the capacity to credit, to construct, to, Absolutely, uh, that's central. And in some yes. sense, re-enchant in some sense. Otherwise, society or any kind of economy but is not here, possible if here, people are constantly uh, here we being move into in disabuse yeah, of their religion. Even more problematic waters. I think, this is why to provoke my friends, mm. half a year ago I had a, I gave a lecture in Madrid and the title was A Plea for Bureaucratic Socialism, right. you know. Okay. I think the left should shamelessly embrace large, even larger than nation-state, mm. uh, organizatorial, even bureaucratic structures. I'm deeply skeptical about these local democracies. Mm. You know, we, I live in a village, we debate everything, how to distribute water or whatever. No, I always give these examples. Think about Fukushima. My good friend uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, the best theorist of catastrophes today, was there two days later. I'm sorry if you know this story. And he told me that for a couple of hours, as an envoy of, from European Union, for a couple of hours, Japanese authorities thought that they will have to, to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. Where would they go and so on? You cannot put them in Japan. In a rational, larger than world organization, I don't know, you convince Russians to give part of Siberia and so on. We will need to cope with catastrophes, mm. changing pattern of weather. We absolutely need larger than nation state forms of coordination. That's a matter of survival. It's the same with refugees. That's why I problematize how they are treated. Of course, I sympathize with them, but don't change them into a humanitarian problem, you know. They're on the borders of Europe. Will we open our hearts to them? No, it's already too late. Act now. What is happening now in Yemen? The Western allies, Saudi Arabia, destroying a country and so on and so on. Now we have to act. Mm. And I'm a pessimist here, if you ask me. I'm no longer this type of 
of, again, I often repeat, maybe even in this book, an old East European joke, no? Because leftists are telling me, yeah, but there is the light at the end of the tunnel. You know what's my answer? Of course, because it's another train uh, <laughs> approaching <laughs> us, you know. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the sort of central dilemma that you map out in the hmm? book, and this was also the dilemma, of course, of, of Trump versus Clinton, or of yeah. Lee versus Remain, or of Le Pen versus Macron, yeah. is that what you've just outlined is in some ways a defense of technocracy. And it's exactly technocracy. No, 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 no. I well, think the ability to get things no, done. That, no, no, no. That, but that's why I was ironically mm. for Trump. Mm. Yeah. The good thing about Trump is that he problematized this rule of enlightened technocracy. Right. No, no, no. I'm even saying that Trump is a reaction to the failure of this enlightened technocracy, mm. who are all for uh, transgender, whatever you want, just don't touch capital. Right. And that's for me the tragedy. Look what happened with Syriza. The highest populist moment, they won referendum, mm. two or three days later, capitulation. Mm. I think that, let's face it, the big problem is not this left populist for me, uh, another chain of uh, hegemonic ideology, blah, blah. The big problem is nonetheless, do we have an alternative to mm. capitalism or at least how to reform it radically, which somehow can mobilize people? And what's the answer at the moment? At the moment, no. 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 But this does not mean let's do nothing. Mm. I admire everything that happens from Corbyn here to Bernie Sanders in the US and so on. Because, you know, uh, my last conclusion in my previous book, Incontinence of the Void, is that the tragic lesson that we should learn from 20th century is that we should abandon this. It's not so much Marx as the young Lukács, this idea that proletarian revolution is a unique moment of historical transparency. An agent knows what it is doing and so on. No, revolution is also tragic. It fails maybe even in a half necessary way. We have to accept this tragic dimension of revolutions. For example, we even don't have a good theory of, that's for me the greatest reproach to Frankfurt School. Their obsession with right-wing fascism and so on. Do they have, they, why did they totally ignore theoretically Stalinism? Mm. It's for me the biggest enigma of Frankfurt School. It's not that they were secretly Stalinist, no. no. <laughs> if something, they were very well integrated into the West German were they, were they aware of Stalinism in the... Everybody was aware, be serious, I mean. They were even worse than Hannah Arendt, who is not as one-sided as thought, you know, read her Origins of Totalitarianism, and you can see that she, do she doesn't equate fascism and Stalinism. He says fascism is totalitarian, but with Soviet communism, she is very specific. She says just for one decade, a little bit more, from early 30s to early 50s, was when it was truly totalitarian. So I think we need this. We are still waiting for a good theory of the how was something like Stalinism possible. Mm which began with the, I still am a kind of a, I don't buy this bullshit that October Revolution, even Chomsky buy it, was just a coup d'etat of 100 people there. No, it was an authentic event. But mm. 
we know what happened. Okay, sorry. No, no, too much. Are we, should we move into some questions now? Um, ah, now we're, we're in the mood some, for democracy. Yeah, we're going to have a populist moment and, and see where it leads. Will, do you agree with Slavoj? Who? He? Me? Uh, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> I agree with some bits of it. I mean, I... Um, okay, let's be fair now. <laughs> Tell me... Fuck what you don't agree with. <laughs> Tell me what you... I hope you agree with this turn. Tell me with what you don't agree. Well, I mean, I, I think that this left populism is actually one of the only starting points for some of the things that you're talking about. The question of whether you can join it up with a level of bureaucracy that can operate at potentially at a global level, which is, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the reality of, of the nature of the challenges we face, that some that forms of global bureaucracy are actually necessary. But at the moment, where does political hope, none of that in itself offers any kind of political hope or space for political action. Now, the distance between this kind of left populism and some form of kind of socialist IMF or something like that, mm. <laughs> which is also quite some mm. way off, is obviously huge. Um, but this is where, I mean, you know, there's been movements within the European Union by people like Varoufakis and others to try and imagine a kind of democratic version he of the European will, Union. If you tell him that he is a populist, he will instantly shoot at you. And I really? agree. You know, that's my second problem with populism. I still think that one should be very careful in using these terms. Every popular mobilization is not automatically populism. Populism is a certain logic of us people against those in power and mm. so on. And I simply, again, the, the example that I gave you, today, popular movement against Trump. No, it's crucial. Nonetheless, the enemy is the capitalist system. It's not that it's a priori bad. Mm. My God, be serious. Capitalism is the greatest, most dynamic production machine in the history of humanity. Just look at what Chinese did with it. Are we aware, and I'm opposed to that, my books are now censored, almost prohibited in China. But nonetheless, are you aware that I think never in the history of humanity was there such an explosive development of new wealth and so on than in China mm. in the last 50 years? And you know what, for me, the problem with every populism, with this simple popular mobilization, it's very brutal one. It works in opposition. But after my following my long, mm. sad experiences, mm. I'm always asking myself, how would it look in power? Yeah. Can you even imagine, but I don't think Corbyn, already Corbyn, I don't think uh, uh, Corbyn's labor is really populist. But let's mm. imagine him in power. Can you imagine how many troubles would there have been, not because they are stupid, but with the boycott of international mm. capital and so on, all that. I'm I mean, just a cautious pessimist. And I mean, this, the same argument, you talk a little bit about environmental catastrophe, catastrophe in the Anthropocene in the yeah. book. I mean, there's an argument going on within eco-Marxists, which could be roughly described as being Jason Moore versus Andreas Malm, where the question is, do we need to hang on to a Western idea of nature if we're to save what we call nature? Or do we have to kind of scrap the very idea of nature in this kind of more Western rationalist sense? And I suspect that you would say that we Hang on to it in some way. No, we can't. nature. I'm against nature. You're against nature, but absolutely. Is, I mean, so the reason I've raised that, the, is that I, I wrote in my other book that the first premise of a Marxist ecology is nature doesn't exist. Okay. But right. isn't okay, this also the lesson of Anthropocene and so on and yeah. so on? Mm. I think that precisely 
to confront our ecological threat, mm. we need modern Western science. And I will give you so a proof. This is my point, yeah. 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 I will give you a proof. Even to identify ecological threats, mm. you need ultra-modern science. Sorry, look up. As long as you want, you will never see an ozone mm. hole or mm. whatever. You know, we need science yeah. more than ever. This was more my point, was the yeah. question, back to the question of sort of where do we stand in relation to the project mm. of modernity at this particular moment? And do we have to kind of have more modernity in some of these I'm areas? totally and, for modernity, right. so, but not in the sense of another yeah. soon when we take mm. over, Gulag mm. prisoner, right. uh, yeah. Steven Pinker. Yeah, yeah. This type of enlightenment, <laughs> you know, this new... Someone keeping a, a record, by the way. We've got Pinker and Peterson, I think, are going to be sharing the same... Uh, you will continue to talk like this and you will be in that <laughs> I just... This is a friendly warning. Not the same self. <laughs> no, 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 no. The, it's the joke that I make once to Slaughter Dyke. You can be sure that when you will be there in Gulag, you know what you get there on Sunday? This disgusting cabbage soup mm. with some fish heads in it, if you are lucky. Mm. And I will call from my office in Moscow every Sunday. You will get an additional bowl of oh. this soup. So you can well, be I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, uh, serious. Uh, you asked me this before. Mm. You know what's my problem with this new enlightenment? It's mm. also Sam Harris, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. all of them. Like things are doing, going better. Uh, first, I agree with my friend Alain Badiou, who claims that the parallel today is not we are again in the 30s. Mm. We are more like before World War I. And mm. imagine at that point, why people were not ready to believe that a new World War could be? Because they said exactly as this new enlightenment people are saying today. But my God, look, for 50 years, Europe had an unprecedented development. Women, at least in some countries, got both higher standard living social. And, but it did happen all of a sudden. This was the greatest shock. So that's the first point. The second point, you know, okay, where does statistic cheat? He likes uh, Steven Pinker, this statistic. Look, it's so much better and so on and so on. Okay, let's say I am a Jew and you tell me, Look how things improved for you Jews. 100 years ago, uh, anti-Semitism was uh, almost universal. Now it's prohibited. You have your own state and so on. But then I can say, yes, but in between there was Holocaust. Yeah. And this progress wouldn't have happened yeah. probably, mm -hmm. unfortunately, without Holocaust. The third thing, but revolution and tensions don't happen when things are really bad. Yeah. Things explode where they are getting a little bit better, but then these hopes explode and so on and so on. Yeah. So I think that precisely we live in an extremely fragile mm. times. Mm. And in a way, we know it. Okay, I hate to use this word, but unconsciously. Yeah. Hollywood knows it. I trust Hollywood, you know, always. Look, all these uh, dystopias, Hunger Games, and so yeah. on and so on. They know the message is if things go on the way they are, we will be there. Well, I'm critical of these dystopias. Post you know why? That's the bad side of these movies. Okay, you have this future society radically distinguish like in Elysium, those in, those out. 
But at the end, the happy end of the movie is that somehow the old order is restored, precisely the order which gave birth to this. Uh, so yes, yeah. I'm more of a pessimist here. Sorry, I talked too much. Let's take yeah. another, we have, a, we have a hand up here and any, any Two others? there and... Uh, yeah. um, so you discussed how the digital world is going to be yeah. owned or controlled in the future. Yeah. I was, um, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn recently suggested the idea of potentially creating a like a government-run social network to rival Facebook. The Chinese government recently introduced a social, like a, a credit rating system but based on your social media activity, based on who you know. Mm -hmm. So obviously these uh, politicians on the left are really thinking about this. So what, what's your views on sort of how the state should intervene in that, in that sphere? You know, again, which state, in what, whose interest, and so on and so on. I mean, this is a great dilemma, I know, and it's funny how many radical leftist liberals, who when I was young were absolutely against any censorship and so on, are now in my own country, United States, when you confront alt-right hate speech, they are the worst advocates now of state control, control hate speech, and so on and so on. And I think the first thing to admit here is simply that this is, at some level in the present situation, uh, an alternative, a contradiction, which cannot be easily, easily resolved. You know who wrote a book, good book on this? Uh, I don't agree with her always theoretically, but she's very bright. I'm not sure if I will uh, pronounce her name correctly. Angela Nagle. Nagel. Nagel, yeah. Yeah, Nagel that uh, uh, kill all normies. Mm -hmm. It's a very tragic book. Her thesis is precisely how what was 30, 40 years ago considered this leftist, provocative, obscene words, dirty, marginal talk, how this was taken over by alt-right. They now use all this ironic obscenity and so on, and the left answers with the push to moralist uh, censorship and so on and so on. And here I have again big, big, uh, big problems. I know that obscenity can be the obscenity of those in power. I hear in my first book already in English, Sublime Object, I attack Umberto Eco for this, his name of the rose, for this crazy idea, laughter is subversive. Ha <laughs> ha, you should have seen a true Stalinist bureaucrat, how they can mock and laugh at ordinary people. But at the same time, I still believe I went on to provoke people on this. Of this, uh, like, when the situation is really terrifying, Sometimes the only way to sustain it is through an obscene humor, which can work in a totally non-racist way. And to give you an example, trigger warning, as they say in the US, it will be extreme obscenity and so on. I now know a guy who is my good friend. He's now at Stanford Gort Scholarship, but he is from Tuzla in Bosnia, and he does field work in Srebrenica. How they have survivors of Srebrenica. In order to survive, they developed an extremely dirty humor, which is not making fun, but you know, the message is the situation is so horrible that for the time being, we cannot even do the normal work of mourning and so on. The joke is, you know, there is a couple Bosnian classical jokes of Muyo and Fata. Muyo, an ordinary Bosnian guy, Fata, his uh, wife, and his wife is supposed to be very promiscuous. And the joke is that they find some graves of Bosnians killed by the Serbs in Srebrenica, 
and the bodies were distorted. So the only parts untucked were their penises. So they brought to Fata, because the rumor was that her husband was among them, a bag of penises and said, look through them if you will recognize your husband's penis. And uh, I use this in my forthcoming book to deal with some mathematical problems of universality <laughs> exclusion. You will see the paradox. Trigger warning, obscenity. She looked, this, this is not Muyo, this is not Muyo, this is not Muyo. Then comes the joke, another penis. This one is not even from Srebrenica. <laughs> now, you know where you have a beautiful ambiguity. Does this mean I fucked all the guys from Srebrenica? Or does this mean I fucked another guy and I So it can mean I fucked all around guys, but it can also mean I had just one lover and I know his and I developed the whole Lacanian yeah. theory right. out of that. It's very serious. I enjoyed it. No, but uh, <laughs> sorry, now, sorry, yeah, so just briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I just, to answer you seriously, you know, this is not brutally making fun of the victims. This is how they survive. This is the only way they can cope with the horror of the situation. And this is, I don't see the space for all this in the ordinary political correctness, if you ask me. <laughs> the question was about public ownership of social media platforms, but... Yeah. <laughs> okay, in my ideal state, you would have this Corbyn's media where you would get jokes like that. From right, Sarah. okay, there you go. <laughs> Um, hello, Sabo. Um, well, lovely, lovely to meet you. I've read like 30 of your books. Um, uh, you, when you begin like this, I know behind your back you're already <laughs> sharpening the knife. <laughs> you, you okay, um, as a film student, I'm wondering if you have another Pervert's Guide lined up or are you involved in any other film projects? Oh my god, this is such a friendly question. It's so sad. <laughs> yes, we do, but we got problems. My desire was to do something very traditional, a Pervert's Guide to Opera. It was so beautiful, with such love I would have done it. Just Orpheus, you begin with, you know, the first operas were all a call to God to show mercy. Then what happened in Mozart, Wagner, and then the end, Schoenberg and all that, they claimed at Channel 4, or I don't know where, it's not commercial enough. And they proposed something which I, you know, already, uh, this is not a joke. When, for the last one, Pervert's Guide to Ideology, Sophie Fines told me, when she proposed this title, it's, I like it so much, you know what some bureaucrat from Channel 4 told her? But this is a strange title, today we live in post-ideological era, there is no longer ideology, so why don't put it Pervert's Guide to Modern Spiritual Trends, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Another, we join you in Gulag, you know, and so on. Okay, no, so seriously, so now we adopted a very conformist solution. It's cheap, but at least it will allow me to use all my stuff. I'm so ashamed for it, Pervert's Guide to... 21st century, you know, it's, uh, but okay, I will be able to use all the uh, new jokes and so on and so on. But also, you know, I'm getting, uh, it's very shameful to say this, I'm getting old, tired, and I'm now under terrible pressure to do now, I'm just finishing my maybe last big philosophical book. I hope you will like it. I put all my hopes into this book. I try to do something extremely naive, to return to and address all this 
questions which are avoided by all those post-metaphysical, like, is there reality? How is it structured? What does it mean knowing reality? Is there a universe? All these totally naive mm. questions I try, the role of subjectivity and so on, and I am very much attached to this book. So I am not even pushing, uh, pushing too much. And to finish with another joke, sorry. Uh, you know, do you hear my story? It's true. Uh, we wanted to open Pervert's Guide to Ideology with a shot from, it remained only a small episode there, a shot from, uh, and uh, Sophie already hired a helicopter from Salzburg uh, police. She located, you know, the beginning of Sound of Music, the hills are alive and then the crazy nun running there. Uh, that the idea is this one, a helicopter approaching me, you can see me in the movie dressed as a monk, and then I start to dub voice, to sing the hills are alive with the sound of ideology and so on. And then I already wrote the lyrics, the words, you know, some of my favorite things, the song in Sound of Music. And it was like torture, interrogation, blah, blah. These are some of my favorite things and so on, you know. And then we didn't get, the, maybe they were so right. You're working on that? Concurrently and with the, a book sorry. about the nature and of ontology. The worst joke <laughs> when you have that, you notice the original idea, you see, I think, in the movie, that song, Climb Every Mountain and so on. My verse was another one, we couldn't do it. That I am, uh, in view of all these uh, uh, pedophilia scandals, no? That a young priest comes to me, I am some kind of a boss of monastery, and says, Father, I have temptation, I still yearn for young boys and so on, what should I do, punish me? And then I start to think, climb every young boy and so on. <laughs> it didn't work, so this is brutal terror of bourgeois <laughs> no? No, 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 but we are planning to do it, just it goes very slowly. I'm getting old, tired. My God, in my Nazi universe, I don't even deserve to exist any longer. I'm now, next year, I will be 70, I mean. Do, do people still have the right to exist at that age? I... You can join us in the gulag, maybe, with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and all that people. For yeah, but then some... we will have immediately struggle among others and we will denounce each other to the authorities, you know, like, and so on, yeah. I think... Uh, on that note, we're going but to let's, wrap let's things up. But let's do symbolically maybe just one more, because it was only center and left, maybe some right-winger here. Yeah, please, yes. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, please, please, yeah. I guess mostly, Slavo, your main thrust is, I mean, as yeah. you have said, um, in terms of like a transnational, global, kind of new world order that um, is able to um, govern society. Like, I guess essentially on a basic level, you'd have... Um, the abolition of um, visas and borders, so you'd have like a... But I guess my question will be how... I guess you're going to be a critic of postmodernism, yeah, yeah. postmodernist thinking, yeah. and the whole um, yeah. move towards political correctness as embodied in the Me Too movement and yeah. that stuff. But then would it be possible to see those kind of um, political actions or slogans or protests as a form of kind of false consciousness? that blind um, people towards the reality which oppresses You mean Me them. Too and all that? Mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, what is new forms of false consciousness? Yeah, that, me that, too. Wouldn't, I'm not, that be seen yeah, in the form yeah. of false consciousness? Ah, so I'm, no, no, no. I'm not bluffing and trying to cover my back. 
when I say that basically I deeply sympathize with Me Too. I think it's an extremely important thing. I think that basically the basic matrix form of relations between sexes, which maybe even predates class society, is now dissolving. It's an extremely important, unthinkable change that is going on there. And I am not playing the game of uh, Catherine Deneuve and up to a point even Sean Penn, who said they are too radical. No, this is pseudo-radicalism, they are not radical enough even, I claim. The task is tremendous. The task is, again, as you said nicely, uh, with a critique of me, but you were right, uh, in the sense of not just this idea of uh, this idea of detect all the traces of male violence and so on, the negative work, but okay, propose a new model of sexual relations. And I think this liberal formula, you know, whatever it doesn't hurt you, these forms are, are, not, are not enough. The task, one provocative idea that I have in a short text that again, nobody wanted to publish it, you, you, could, you cannot even imagine how many of my short comments I cannot publish. I think that, you know what is for me one very worrisome tendency in uh, uh, political correctness and so on? How far do you push this line of injustice? For example, you know, they are the symptom of it, I think. Do you know extremely interesting phenomenon? The so-called incels, involuntary celibaters. They are right wiggers in all domains, alt-right, but they are basically, I simplify it, although it's more complex. It began as a lesbian movement, but the predominant form. There are not many, but there are a couple of hundreds of thousands. Their idea is there for hierarchy, Trump, and so on. But they claim that the basic, one of the, ba and Jordan Peterson supported them here, that one of the basic causes of violence and instability of our societies is that because of this uh, relative promiscuity, freedom of sex, and so on, all the male energy is focused on a couple of beautiful women. And everybody wants to be with them. So the majority of women get neglected. That's why we have low birth rate and so on. So now comes the joke. Those, the right-wingers, they demand some kind of social intervention. Some of them even direct bureaucratic social control to distribute women. That's typical, yeah. not men, women. To distribute women more equally so that every man will get a wife and to enforce a new... It, sound, it may sound crazy, but you know that in some American colleges in Texas, they told me, I got the names, they uh, move further with this logic of politically correct, which is, I think, for egalitarianism. A couple of guys in some colleges insisted that, to put it in blunt, politically incorrect terms, if you are stupid, you are underprivileged. Like, you try, and they... If you, they already have this, that if you are stupid, mentally challenged, whatever it is, uh, you go to a psychiatrist, psychologist, if you get a confirmation, you are treated in a special way, lighter exams, better graded, and so on and so on. Already, also in Texas, some people already claim that in uh, some jobs, 
beautiful men and especially women have a privilege. So there also has to be an affirmative action here. But here some feminists gave an ingenious answer. And also some of my Russian friends told me the same. That it's also the opposite. If you are considered by the ruling perception as a beautiful woman, you will be much more harassed and exploited. So I know already of cases where women who were, according to ruling standard measure, beautiful, made themselves uglier when they applied for a job. So what I want to say is that the only solution that I see is to turn around incels. Yes, for social equality, blah, blah, human rights in... Okay, I'll put the formula proposed by another of my centrist, almost right-wing Frank, friends, Jean-Claude Milner. There are no human rights in sexuality. Sexuality is in a way irrational, unjust, and so on, and don't try to regulate it. You know, of course it's unjust. Why do some people get it, others not, all that stuff? Don't try to, don't try to regulate it. So this is why I think that these are problems which cannot be resolved in this easy way. And all these nightmares, like sexuality, you know, you never know. People say you shouldn't do it from the position of power. But sometimes this is exactly what works. Not only in the sense that uh, a woman, really, I'm disgusting for her, but if I am, which I'm not uh, power, uh, powerful, then I will have a chance. No, they can be even attracted by. You know, things are so complex with sexuality that I don't believe in regulation and so on. So, um, well, thank you all very much for coming and join me in thanking Slavoj Žižek very much for mm. some fascinating comments. Uh, and uh, I know that there are things about which he knows much more than me. <laughs> so as a sign of friendship, I ask you as boss of this world, when he will send a postcard from Gulag, <laughs> you will put it somewhere there, no? For Absolutely. People, you, you Absolutely. Know, everything will be okay. That's, you know, that's, so uh, I, I will do that. Thanks very William much. William Davis as well. Thank you so much. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>